everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and we're continuing with our election theme today because it's 2022, and that's a really big year for elections around the country and right here in Austin. In particular, we're going to be talking about two super consequential elections that are happening in just a few weeks, and that will impact the future of criminal justice, climate change, and healthcare. And no, we're not talking about some big fancy congressional or gubernatorial election. We're talking about the Travis County Commissioner's Democratic primaries, precincts two and four. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Let's get into it a bit. Okay, tell me if this moment resonates with you. You're preparing to cast your vote in a November election, but you don't know much about the candidates, so you do a bit of research. You get your hands on a copy of the League of Women Voters Guide, or perhaps you pay a visit to the Austin Common, I hope, and you're immediately presented with two problems. Number one is you've never even heard of most of the candidates, and you have no idea what the job they're running for even entails, like who the heck is a county clerk and what would make someone good at that? So that's one issue. Or two, maybe you read through the candidates' bios and all their position papers, and you don't really like anyone who's on the ballot. So then what? Do you cast an uninformed vote? Do you not vote at all? This is exactly the problem we'll be addressing on today's podcast, and several more episodes that we're going to be releasing throughout the month of February. And that's because March 1st is primary election day in Texas. And the primaries are when you get to choose the candidates from your own political party, we're going to run in the general election in November. And that's really important because it's also when you're able to really choose a candidate that you most relate to. During the primaries, as opposed to choosing between a candidate that you hate and one that you kind of like, which is what happens in the general often, you have a wider range of options. You're often able to look at a few candidates that you generally agree with on all the big stuff, but who might have differences in approach or attitude, or maybe they have different like priority number one issues, or maybe they have more aggressive or innovative ideas for how to actually get things done. In other words, during the primaries, you really get a say in the quality of the candidates. You get to shape what politicians look like and behave like in this country. And quite frankly, in places like Travis County, which are largely dominated by one party, in Austin's case, it's the Democrats, <laughs> the primary election is the only one that matters because either no Republican even runs in the general election or they have a very slim chance of winning. And yet, very few people vote in the primaries. Just a quarter of registered voters in Texas cast ballots in the 2020 primary election. So what kind of things are going to be on your ballot during the primaries? You're going to see a lot of races on your ballot, which include federal positions, like people who are running to represent you in the U.S. Congress, and they also include state, so that's people who are running to become the next governor of Texas, for example, all the way to local, which includes leaders of our county government. What you won't see on the ballot, at least in the Austin area, are any city council or mayoral elections. That's because here in Austin, our city council and mayor don't run as partisans, so you won't see a little D or R next to their names. And because of this, they don't participate in the primaries. Instead, all of the candidates running for city council or mayor will just show up for the general election in November. And at that time, we'll have elections for five city council seats, 
and actually a pretty competitive mayor's race this year, since Mayor Adler is leaving office at the end of 2022 after serving for two terms. And then another thing you're not going to see on your ballot for these primaries are City of Austin local ballot propositions. That's the ones when you have to vote yes or no on a new law, like the homelessness camping ban back in May. Um, We've been having a lot of these in Austin lately, but you're not going to see them on this primary ballot in March. Okay, (laughs) so that was your primary 101 lesson for today. Now let's dig a little deeper into the core of this episode. As always here at the Austin Common, we like to focus on those local races all the way down at the bottom of your ballot that are super important, but also don't get a whole lot of press coverage. So today we're going to be talking all about the Democratic primary for two Travis County commissioner seats. So what does that mean? Well, it's already time for another civics lesson, and this time we're going to focus on Texas. There are 254 counties in Texas, and a few fun county facts that I found on county.org for you include, um, of Texas's 29 million people, 7.6 million, or about one in four, live outside of incorporated cities. And so they rely on counties for basic services like law enforcement and emergency medical services. And then another interesting fact is that by population, the largest county in Texas is Harris County. That's like where Houston is. And they have about 4.6 million residents. On the other hand, the smallest county is Loving with just over 130 residents. And then the largest in size is Big Ben's Brewster County, which is over 6,000 square miles, more than 40 times the size of the smallest county in Texas, which is Rockwall at 149 square miles. So all that's to say, what does a county actually do, right? County government, it's technically an extension of the state government and is tasked with implementing state law and delivering a lot of state services, but with a local twist. Um, In particular, counties have like a few very specific jobs they're in charge of, and these include operating a jail and court system, running a sheriff's department, which is local law enforcement, holding elections, keeping and issuing important records like marriage licenses and car registration, building and maintaining roads. 47% of all Texas roads are built and maintained by county government. Uh, They also provide health care services, particularly for those who can't afford it. And they offer medical, I mean, emergency services during wildfires, floods, and pandemics. So that's what counties are in charge of. And each county has a commissioner's court with five members. Four of those members are county commissioners who each represent a different part of the county, which is called a precinct. And the commissioner's court, it's not really a legal court, despite its name. Instead, it's more like a city council, but for the entire county. Members of the court create policy, they approve budgets, and they set the county tax rate. And the commissioner's court is presided over by the county judge, who is the fifth member of the court. And in some small counties in Texas, that judge actually performs some legal duties. But here in Travis County, the name's a bit of a relic. And the county judge is more like a mayor and is elected countywide. And this year, in 2022, two Travis County commissioner seats are on the ballot. Precinct 2, which includes a lot of central West Austin, as well as Hudson Bend out at Lake Travis. And Precinct 4, which includes parts of Southeast Austin, as well as Del Valley and Creedmoor. And P.S. If you want to figure out which precinct you live in, visit TravisCountyTX.gov. Now, the county judge seat is actually also up for election, but on the Democratic side, the incumbent 
which is the name for the person who currently occupies the seat, his name is Andy Brown, he's running unopposed. And only one person is running in the Republican primary for that position. So there's not really much to say about that now. Um, also, for reference, all of the members of the current Travis County Commissioner's Court are Democrats. Okay, back to the commissioner's race. Why does any of this even matter? You know, at the local level, this really is one of the most important things on the ballot this election cycle. In both the Precinct 2 and 4 Democratic primary race, a long-serving incumbent is being challenged by a younger political activist, generally pushing for even more change than what's been done by the already fairly liberal commissioner's court. In particular, a lot of the things, a lot of things that are key in this race are issues that personally I find super interesting and I know a lot of Austinites do as well. You know, they include things like criminal justice reform, climate change, COVID-19, and inequities in our healthcare system. So, you know, just some nice light topics for you. But the other big reason why this is important is because the Travis County government makes decisions that impact a lot of people. You know, everyone in Texas lives in a county, but not everyone lives in a city. So here in Austin, most of the city is located within Travis County. Although parts of Northwest Austin are actually in Williamson County instead, but we're not going to get into that right now. But Travis County is not just Austin. It also includes Pflugerville, Bee Cave, and Sunset Valley. And it also includes a lot of unincorporated areas, which are spots that don't belong to any city at all. And a good example of this is Del Valley, which isn't technically a city with a mayor and a council. It's simply the name of the region we give for that far eastern part of the county. And so all of that confusing bureaucratic talk is to say, if you live within Austin city limits, you can vote in both the city of Austin elections and your county elections. But quite frankly, as more and more people are getting pushed out of the city, more and more people in central Texas are living outside of any city at all. And so the only local government they really have to represent them is the county. All right, I think that's most of our civic lesson babble for today. So let's get on to the races. First up is the Precinct 2 race. In this race, Bob Leibel, a local criminal justice reform advocate and the former director of grassroots leadership, is challenging the incumbent, whose name is Bridget Shea. And Bridget has been a Travis County Commissioner since she was first elected in 2014. She's also served on Austin City Council from 1993 to 1996, and originally came to Austin back in 1988 to start the Texas chapter of Clean Water Action which is a national environmental advocacy organization. And so Bridget is, Bridget is definitely well known for being a strong environmental advocate and for good reason. She really helped to lead the Save Our Springs movement in the early 90s, which pretty much saved Barton Springs pool and really cemented Austin's legacy as a green city. So then why is Bob running against her? You know, the main issue that brought him to run was the Travis County Women's Jail. And you're going to hear both candidates talk a lot about this in the interviews I'm about to play, but I just want to give you some basic background information first. So last summer, the Travis County Commissioner's Court, they were set to take a vote to approve an initial design contract to kick off the building of a new $79 million women's jail. And that was all part of a 20-year master plan developed back in 2016 to replace many of the county's jail buildings. And the reasoning here was that an analysis found that a lot of the buildings were aging and in pretty poor condition, and that currently there isn't a single building for women, which means that they're spread out all across the jail complex, which creates a lot of problems, and makes it so they don't have good access to programs or healthcare services. But a group of criminal justice advocates, which included grassroots leadership and by libel, started really pushing back against this plan. And they really didn't want to see more money spent on a new women's jail. 
Instead, they wanted to see it on diversion efforts. And so they led a campaign to tell the commissioner's court to vote, vote this proposal down. And at first, Bridget J. seemed opposed to the idea of delaying work on the women's jail. Here's actually an excerpt from an article that was written by Seth Smalley in the Austin Monitor from June 10th, 2021. Okay, here's that excerpt. Quote, nobody likes jails. I don't know anybody who likes jails. I don't like jails. Nobody likes having to spend our money on it. But we have a legal responsibility to maintain the jails. And to and not to just the very least minimum standards. There's enough of that in Texas already. End quote. Commissioner Bridget Shea said. She went on to state her belief that the county's justice system is as humane as possible. Quote, we have to have jails. There are people who are dangerous criminals who need to be in jail. I'm appreciative of what the advocates have done, but at the end of the day, we have an unpleasant and unpopular responsibility to maintain the jails. End quote, Shea said. Okay, so that's that quote from the Austin Monitor. In the end, the entire commissioner's court, including Bridget Jay, they did vote unanimously to put work on a new women's jail on pause for at least a year. And then they also directed staff to reevaluate the jail's strategic plan and look into combining a mental health diversion program with the Travis County Sobering Center in order to prevent those experiencing mental health crises from being booked into jail in the first place. But the whole thing was really a big controversial moment in our local politics and really is at the core of this race. Okay, so let's get into those interviews. First up is Bob Leibel. Let's give that one a listen. Okay, I'm here with Bob, and we are talking all about county commissioners. Um, let's just start from the beginning a little bit about who you are, what brought you to this point you're at today where you're running for office. Sure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm Bob Leibel. Uh, I'm a longtime community organizer and a criminal justice reform and immigrant rights advocate. Uh, I was the executive director at Grassroots Leadership, an advocacy organization based here in Austin that does work locally and nationally um, for many years on criminal justice and immigration issues. Uh, and I'm uh, particularly interested in running for a county commission because uh, the county commission controls uh, most of the criminal justice budget in our community outside of the police department. Uh, and during the debate over the women's jail last summer, it became abundantly clear that we needed a voice uh, that was steeped in criminal justice reform issues on the dais to be able to ask tough questions about how we're spending our money on uh, criminal justice issues, um, if we are a community that is dedicated to ending mass incarceration in our community, it seems like we really need a voice up there who is able to articulate that and to um, work towards that end. So that's one of the big reasons that I decided to run. Yeah, you know, I think this is a, a, a super important point that a lot of people aren't aware of and aren't aware of, you know, here in Austin, past few years, we've had a huge amount of conversation around reimagining public safety and what that looks like. And that really has been focused on the city of Austin and APD, you know, with reason. But um, I think a lot of folks don't realize the county is in charge of our jail system and our court system and a lot of the other key components there, as well as the sheriff's department, which is kind of like the police for the whole county. So like, let's, let's start with the women's jail, maybe use that as an example. So can you give people a little reference there? What was that conversation about? And what, what about that kind of ignited something in you in particular and start thinking about uh, this run? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the um, the counties, uh, about 60% of the county's budget goes to the criminal justice system, right? So we're talking about the jail and the prosecutors and the public defender and the court system, um, uh, constables, right? So the criminal justice system is a huge part of the county's budget already. Um, and what we were talking about this summer was an effort uh, to and we already spend on the jail more than we do on health and human services, uh, economic and community development and environmental services combined. Um, so it's a huge you know, chunk of the budget and that's just the annual operating expenses for the jail. Um, what we were talking about this summer was whether or not the county was gonna do an additional $80 million to essentially tear down a facility at the Del Valley Correctional Complex and build a new jail for women. Uh, the criminal justice reform advocacy community uh, came together to say that is a bad idea uh, for a number of reasons. One, we have successfully lowered our jail population, including the women in the jail, uh, over the last several years due to a variety of reforms, right? Things like Austin's Freedom City policy, which says we're not going to arrest people for uh, petty nonviolent offenses, things like driving without a valid license or low level marijuana possession. Um, and then the election of like Jose Garza and Delia Garza as reform prosecutors. So our jail population is much lower than it was. Um, uh, and we're, we've also gone through this kind of national reckoning over racism in the criminal justice system, right? Um, even here in Travis County, more than 35% of the people who are in jail today are African-American in a community that is only 9% Black, right? Um, the jail still is our largest mental health provider in our community, right? Something like 40% of the people in the jail have psychiatric diagnoses. So what the criminal justice reform community was saying was, let's not build this new women's jail until we have a plan for how we might be able to do other things in our community that could keep people out of jail in the first place. So what if we spend a good chunk of that $80 million on building a mental health facility or a substance use treatment facility or on things like violence interruption or domestic violence uh, prevention programming or trauma recovery centers, right? Are some of the ideas that are out there. Um, and the $80 million women's jail is just a part of a $600 million decade long plan to essentially rebuild the jail system in Travis County at approximately the same uh, level as it has been for the, for the last 30 years, right? And I think from a criminal justice reform advocacy perspective, we're saying we should be planning, right, to be continuing to reduce our jail population, not planning to just reinvest in the system of racist incarceration that we have in our community. And so it was really that community that came to me and said, we need somebody to run in this seat because the incumbent in the seat, Bridget Shea, had been a vocal proponent of the women's jail. And even on the campaign trail is, is continuing to say, you know, we should, we should invest in this facilities plan because we need new facilities for the people in the jail. Right. So this is kind of like the difference or the, the, the conversation you hear uh, in support of the women's jail was that um, you know, the women's jail facilities were crumbling and really inadequate and not safe uh, or didn't offer as many services. And so the thought was rebuilding the women's jail so that it could provide a lot of healthcare services, in particular mental health care, all, all these different things. Um, but, you know, I guess it's two different approaches here, right? So what you're talking about is um, 
trying to eliminate the need for it in the first place, or I guess you could talk a little bit more about that. I just want to share a little bit. That's kind of like the bin where the debate is at. Yeah, that's absolutely what the debate is, right? Do we invest in the jail or do we invest in things that might keep people out of the jail and provide them with those needed services before they're in the jail? And I think that what we know with women in particular, but honestly, for people across the spectrum, is that if you were in jail, uh, in jail, right, jail is different than prison. There was some confusion on the dais about this, right, during the- Can can you explain that really quickly, too? I think the average public does not know. Absolutely. And the commissioner in this district uh, was sort of conflating the two during the conversation as well. So it's important to, to, to say prison is generally where people go when they are sentenced, right, for a crime. The vast majority of people in jail are not yet sentenced for a crime, right? They've been arrested, right? But they are in jail awaiting their uh, their trial or their sentencing, right? So the vast majority of people go in and then come out, right, in a relatively quick time frame. And in the case of the women's, that's even more so because it's even more people who are arrested on low-level violations. I think it was something like 90% of women who are arrested in Travis County are in and out in 72 hours, right? So people are not there for a long period of time. But what we do know is that if you are uh, incarcerated for a day or three days, right? The collateral consequences of of that incarceration in the jail are great, right? You can lose your job if you're incarcerated for a day or two, you can lose your apartment if you're incarcerated for a week, you can lose your children right, if you're incarcerated for a month. And so, you know, what we are saying is that we should really take a look at who is there and determine whether or not we need to actually build a facility to continue to incarcerate the vast majority of those people, or if we could do something like build a mental health and treatment facility, given that we know that so many of the people who are in the jail have a mental health diagnosis and a substance use diagnosis, oftentimes both of them. And so, um, you know, it really is about, do we invest in the system that frankly is an, I think an outdated right system of mass incarceration kind of comes from uh, the tough on crime, you know, kind of 1990s uh, idea of criminal justice or do we do something new in our community? And I think that what we heard loud and clear from formerly incarcerated women and from criminal justice reform advocates this summer is that we want to do the new thing. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, the Dell Valley Correctional Complex is a jail. Right, right. So we have- We don't want the travel, yeah. That's right. So there are, right, there are two jails that are run by the county, right? There's the downtown booking center, which is the, uh, down by the courthouse, right? and that is where people are booked into jail. And then if you're, and then depending on if it's a weekend or a weekday or whatever, you're generally sent out to Del Valley if you are there for 48 hours or longer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the longer term um, uh, facility that the county operates. It's mm-hmm. not, there's also something called the Travis uh, uh, State Jail that's out on 969, uh, but that is actually a state prison uh, that they, there's a whole class. The county's not in charge of it. The Charlotte County is not in charge of it as a state. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I want to shift gears slightly and talk about a few other key issues that are uh, top of mind in the commissioner's race. Um, one is environmental issues. You know, mm-hmm. this is um, a big issue, obviously, for the whole world and climate and what we're doing about that. Um, and, you know, I, I saw on your, on your website that, um, 
you've talked some about wanting more of a green new deal for Travis County and this kind of thing. And I'll also point out like, this is an area, the environment where your opponent in the race is like definitely of the environmental community in Austin. Right. And it is an environmental advocate. So I'm curious, like what you feel like you could bring to the table and talk a little bit, some about your environmental platform or plans for this position in particular. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, Commissioner Shea has a long record, right, in the environmental work, you know, and her work on the Save Our Springs Ordinance is clearly, you know, extremely valuable today. Um, uh, and, and when we look at what, how Travis County is prioritizing uh, issues at the county, right, I think we can't really say that climate change is something that we are uh, at least budget-wise, right, spending much of our uh, county budget on, right? Uh, and I think that for us, right, when we look at what we're actually up against when it comes to climate change, right, which is an existential threat to, you know, the world and certainly to our community as well, we think that we need to make a kind of generational investment in uh, climate mitigation, resiliency, uh, transportation, right, and housing, right, that um, that were sort of as a package calling a Travis County Green New Deal, right, and I think that uh, we're going to be unable to do that if we continue to spend the amount of money that we do on the criminal justice system, and so if we do believe that, and I certainly do, that climate change is one of the biggest safety issues in our community, we need a reframing, I think, um, to develop um, uh, a kind of comprehensive package, right, that puts uh, the muscle of the county budget behind those plans. Um, if we can have a $600 million plan for jail facilities, right, we can certainly have a $600 million plan for climate resiliency and mitigation, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, the the regular way county government is usually described uh, to me anyway, or I've had it described as like the county government's allowed to do what what they're told to, they're allowed to do by the state legislature or by a state law, whereas city governments are allowed to do anything they're not allowed not told they explicitly can't do by state law. Um, and so I feel like for a lot of a lot of the time that generally has meant. Uh, there's a perception of county, the county government just doing like your bread and butter stuff, kind of the way it's been done, right? Like they, they're in charge of operating the criminal justice system. They're in charge of roads. You know, they have a few very specific purviews. And it seems like what you're talking about is maybe trying to figure out, and like our county government has done more than that in some ways. We do have a climate plan. We, we have been focused on these issues, but it's, and parks is another big one, but it seems like what you're talking about is trying to figure out how to leverage, think about how to spend that money in, in a different way. And, and, you know, and transportation could be a huge component of that, I suppose, as well. Like, I guess, talk a little bit how you feel like you could innovate county government to be more, I guess, leading on some of these issues. I think that's exactly the right word, right? We need innovation and new ideas at the Travis County Commissioner's Court. It feels very staid sometimes. Um, I think that there is uh, a real, uh, 
and I think that we, when we look at other places, right, Harris County, for example, has invested county funds in bikeways in the city, right? And I think that we often also hear, well, the county only does things that are outside of the city. But from a transportation perspective, that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, uh, you know, a million of our 1.3 or 1.4 resident, 1.3 or 1.4 million residents live in the city, and the vast majority of miles walked, biked, you know, bussed and trained and driven, right, are in the city, right? So we should be investing where we can make the biggest impact, right? Which I think does include making county investments within the city, um, transportation investments in particular, but and we clearly already do that on housing, right, and other things. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that new ideas, right, thinking about these things comprehensively, one of the things that we're proposing is a countywide housing and affordability plan, complete with a housing director at the county that can coordinate things like rental assistance, uh, like um, the, the uh, public housing sort of uh, um, infrastructure that we have through the housing authority and the, the strategic finance corporation that actually operate housing for the county and have been in the news uh, because of the sort of debacle at Rosemont. Um, uh, and I think also should be deeply coordinating with the community organizations that are doing that kind of advocacy uh, with people in the in you know, in housing, people like the Austin Tenants Council and BASTA and the Austin Justice Coalition amongst others. Um, so yeah, I do think that we we need a little more uh, drive to integrate those kind of those kind of efforts at the county. And I guess it sounds to me a little bit of what you're talking about there is working with all recognizing that some of these things are regional. Like housing is such a big one, especially now. It's like as people get pushed out of the city of Austin, quite frankly, because they can't afford to live within city limits, like Travis County is growing like crazy in the parts where people don't belong to any city at all. And Travis County government is their is their local government, really, in that in that case. Yeah, that's right. Right. And I mean, I feel like we're in danger of becoming a county where no one can afford to live. Right. If we don't mm -hmm. sort of change course, um, uh, you know, I mean, you know, even at the out outskirts of the county, housing is incredibly expensive at this point. So yeah, I think that's right, right? That we need um, a, a, a regional, right, um, uh, perspective on these things, right? I think that Travis County uh, should throw its weight around a little bit more when it comes to regional planning um, uh, 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 on the regional planning boards. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, certainly should be investing uh, resources where it makes the most sense. And again, that is oftentimes like on the Eastern Crescent, right? Right. Uh, when it comes to housing and transportation in place, parts of the county that have been really um, neglected in many ways. But I think it also does mean within the city, right? Because there are parts of the city that have also been deep, deeply neglected and where you have um, uh, large uh, communities that are deeply in need, right? Here in Precinct 2, um, you know, I think about the, you know, sort of the area up uh, on North Lamar, right? Certainly like infrastructure is uh, a huge issue up there when it comes to parks, transportation, um, uh, housing, right? So the county, you know, I don't think that we should exclude, right, the city from uh, the way that we think about uh, county spending. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously we, we touched on this a bit earlier, but 
and, and right now you are challenging an incumbent, someone who served on the commissioner's court for a little while. And, and this is kind of the point, I guess, of primaries too, which a lot of people I think don't vote in or participate in, even though this is, especially for quite frankly, a Travis County commissioner seat, like this is the election um, when you should be really paying attention. Like what, what do you feel like you're bringing to the table? Why did you decide to challenge an incumbent? And why, why do you feel like you're kind of offering something different or something that's needed um, for the community? Sure. Yeah. And this literally because you're both because, li- you know, you're both Democrats. And I think most people that might be the only uh, uh-huh. the only lens they have to view things. So what do you feel like you're kind of bringing that's that's different? to? Yeah, totally. And this literally is the election, right? There is no Republican. Right. So whoever want, whoever wins the primary will be our next Travis County commissioner. Um, so I think that in, in, in addition to some of the sort of key policy differences, right, like I oppose the women's jail. Commissioner Shea has been a proponent of it. I'm, uh, I was opposed to the Tesla tax breaks, right, where the county gave $14 million in tax breaks to Tesla to move here. I don't think Elon Musk needs our money. Um, uh, if he wants to move a factory here, that's great, but he doesn't need our subsidizing, frankly, what are mediocre jobs in many ways, right, um, uh, in terms of their starting salary, at least. Uh, but I also think that there is something about the county commission really flies under the radar. Um, very rarely are votes publicized, right? That uh, the county is taking. Um, uh, you know, the incumbent in our race, Commissioner Shea, doesn't issue a regular newsletter or email about things that are coming up. I think if you go on the website, the the latest newsletter is from 2015 on her website. Um, and I think that people should be engaged in the county activity, right? So I'm running in part to spark that conversation, right? And to say, you know, there are some great local news outlets like the Austin Common, right? Um, uh, but in general, the county gets a pass, right? Because people don't know what's happening there. And um, I want I, I want to stop that, right? I want you to know what your county commission is spending your money on. I want you to know when the major votes are. Uh, you know, things like the budget are incredibly important. You should have a, a decision-making uh, ability in the, in that process. And I want to open it up to people who are typically excluded from the political process, right? Because they're just not talked to, right? Like people like young folks, renters, justice-involved people, immigrants, um, people who speak languages other than English, right? 30% of our community speaks a language other than English at home, um, but county agendas aren't translated into any of those languages. We have our website, our campaign website is in Spanish. And, um, you know, I think it's county government should certainly be translating into Spanish and the other languages that are most spoken in our community. Uh, So I really do want to increase engagement. And I think that um, running a good primary campaign, right, really does that. It forces uh, incumbents and challengers, right, to uh, really articulate what a vision is for the county um, and do better about um, reaching out to people, right? So I really would encourage people to get involved, uh, whether you support me or you support Commissioner Shea, like get involved in this election, right? Um, learn about the issues, learn about the candidates. Uh, we're knocking thousands and thousands of doors as a part of this process, um, calling people, texting people, writing people letters and postcards, right? Basically every way that you can engage. Um, and I think that that's really what makes our community stronger and our democracy a little more inclusive. Great. And kind of along those lines, just to close then, what's a good way for people to learn more about you and follow along with what you're up to in your campaign? 
Yeah, absolutely. Good question. Uh, we're at bobforcommish.com and at bobforcommish on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for doing this. And that was Bob. Next up, let's listen in on the interview I recorded with Bridget Jay. Okay, I am here with Bridget, and we are talking about county commissioners. Uh, you know, let's just let kind of start at the beginning here. You're a current county commissioner. Yes. How long have you been in office, and kind of what brought you, what were you doing before you became county commissioner? Well, um, I came to Texas actually in 1988 to help start the state chapter of Clean Water Action and to fight climate change. And, you know, I've taken a few little um, kind of divots back and forth, but for the most part, I've spent my 33 years here in Texas fighting climate change. And that was really what inspired me to um, run for elective office again. I had been on the city council um, from 1993 to 96. Um, and prior to that, I'd had the privilege to head up the SOS coalition effort to pass the SOS law, which still protects Barton Springs today, 30 years later. Right. And it's kind of like a, you know, a monumental moment in our city's environmental history. Absolutely. It is Austin's great David and Goliath story. The company that was fighting for um, approvals and to get exemptions from the fairly weak existing uh, water quality ordinance um, wanted to build a town about the size of Waco in the watershed for Barton Springs. And it would have, it would have ruined the Springs. And we galvanized the community. In fact, it was, it was um, the strongest water quality ordinance in the nation passed by citizen initiative. Um, and um, it's, it really is our great David and Goliath story. That company owned the world's largest gold mine. Money was no object. And they literally threw millions and millions of dollars at it. And we won by about a two thirds margin after a year long fight in a big turnout election. Yeah. So I had the privilege to do that um, in 92. Um, and after that, I ran for city council and served for one term and championed environmental and consumer and um, uh, social justice initiatives. Um, and then I had my first child and I retired from elective office um, to raise my children and to try and have an impact on, on climate in a variety of ways. Um, I started a consulting firm called Carbon Shrinks and mm -hmm. we worked with the largest carbon emitter in the region, which was the, the Texas Lehigh cement plant in Buda. Um, and we developed an alternative fuels project with them, which won the TCEQ Environmental Excellence Award um, and proved that you, they could substitute uh, a less um, polluting uh, fuels for coal and still uh, produce cement. But um, I, I really had sort of an epiphany um, about 10, 20, 2012, 2013, thinking about my children and realizing the opportunity to stop climate change is, is, is eluding us. It's getting away. And we're leaving future generations a giant mess. And how, how will my children and the children of the world know what to do. And, and it was in that moment when I realized there'd been so much focus on cap and trade and on large policy um, mechanisms to, to try and, and stop climate change, which would have been very effective had they been implemented back in 
you know, the 90s. Right. It failed in, and failed in Congress again. <laughs> and, and, exactly. Yeah. Again and again. Um, and I and what I realized was I was never interested in working on preparing for the impact of climate change. I always wanted to stop it. And that had been the major focus for a lot of public policy. So there wasn't much work at all being done on preparedness. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just thought, you know, this is something where I can make a contribution and where the county has sort of a unique niche in that it has certain um, emergency um, powers, if you will. Um, and that was the reason I decided to run for county commission. I thought I could actually do something at the county level. Um, and that's been my main focus, to fight climate change, to try and reverse it, and to also better prepare our communities for its destructive impacts. And that's, yeah. that's what I've been doing since 2015. And I have to say, we have made stunning progress at the county. I'm incredibly proud of what we've been able to do. Yeah, let's talk about some of the things that you've worked on since you've been at the county in that environmental um, space. Um, I know there's been a few, we've had, we've had you on the show to talk about some of them before, but let's kind of run through um, a few of those things. Well, the big things on, on climate, um, we, we passed a number of um, significant um, ordinances at the county. We passed a climate action plan. We um, established the first ever um, county greenhouse gas inventory, which gave us a baseline to work um, off of for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We passed a climate emergency um, initiative. Um, we passed um, a, a net zero emissions initiative and around all of that and a climate action plan. And around all of that, we've built in um, programs and initiatives at the county to move us uh, toward reducing our greenhouse gas emissions um, and better preparing our, our community. But um, the, the preparedness areas is the one that I've done a lot of the work in. And um, we actually have won a national and state award for the work that I did to create a neighborhood-based wildfire evacuation drill. Um, we started out by just asking people, you know, just doing a basic kind of survey, what, what could the county do that, that would be helpful to help people be better prepared for wildfires, floods, things like that. And someone who uh, had lost their home in the Bastrop fire, um, former commissioner, um, said, you know, we do wildfire drills at schools, but we never do them in our neighborhoods. And that might be a useful thing to do. So we searched the literature to see if we could find any model that we could build off of, and we really couldn't find anything. So we went to the Comanche Trail Neighborhood Association. They are a very fire prone community. They had tried to start initiatives themselves, but just could never sustain them. And um, asked if they'd be willing to basically be like guinea pigs for our experiment. Because we said, we don't know if this will ultimately be useful. Mm-hmm. We spent a year and a half working with them almost every week. <laughs> I got to know those people really well. Um, working with the sheriff's department and our uh, uh, emergency services um, uh, district out there, which is the Lake Travis Fire and Rescue, ESD number six, they did a phenomenal job with us. Our sheriff's department, our uh, emergency services, our parks department, a whole array of people from the county. And, um, and then we ran the fire drill and um, uh, they actually did a full-fledged um, s- a social science survey. Uh, a UT professor's uh, class conducted the survey um, and people rated it just exceptionally effective. And then we, we designed a template that people could use uh, in their own neighborhoods. Um, and that's what won the National Association of Counties and the Texas Association of Counties Award. Um, and it's specifically focused on, you know, how can we help communities be better prepared? We also um, 
have dramatically reduced our water consumption, we know that our region will be much hotter and drier. And one of the things we're gonna to have to deal with is a shrinking water supply. Anybody who was here in 2011 remembers that Lake Travis dried up till it looked like a couple of puddles. Mm -hmm. So uh, I initiated at the county um, a um, uh, effort which we have been very successful at to swap out the water supply for our air conditioning systems in our main buildings and in our jail. And instead of using treated drinking water from Lake Travis, we're using treated wastewater that the city would otherwise discharge into the Colorado downstream of Austin. It's called purple pipe or reuse water. Um, and we hooked up all of our, our four main county buildings downtown and our jail, and we're saving close to 40 million gallons a year permanently removed from the demand side, leaving that water in Lake Travis every year forever. And I'm trying to convince UT and the state capital complex to do the same thing because we could get close to a billion gallons a year left in our drinking water supply. Um, we won the Austin Green Awards uh, for that initiative. Um, I dramatically improved our emergency notification system. When I got elected, um, I joined the regional body called the CAPCOG, Capital Area Council of Governments, and discovered that our uh, emergency notification system, those warnings that you get on your phone that tell you, you know, uh, urgent right. fire in your area must evacuate, they were all landline based. And they'd never really done an analysis to see, well, where do those landlines go? And I, after months and months of uh, <laughs> pressuring them to do it, I finally just went to the technical staff and they ran an audit and discovered that 75% of their almost a half a million phone numbers went to maybe a dozen large employers, um, you know, government hospitals. Right, just center. office lines. Office lines, exactly. Um, and that was what really spurred them and me haranguing them <laughs> to uh, convert over to a cell phone based system. And so our reach for that, you know, life saving, you know, urgent warning went from about 7% of the community um, to almost 70%. So it's been initiatives like that where we've worked to just dramatically in increase our preparedness uh, and to take action to stretch out our drinking water supply. Um, we also adopted at the beginning of the pandemic when it became obvious how well telecommuting worked, um, we adopted a goal at my initiative at the county of having 75% of our employees telecommute on a permanent basis. And we are implementing that now. We've documented that we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions from our employee commute, which was one of our largest sources by 30%. Uh, it's at least 5,500 tons initially, and it will expand. Um, we've dramatically reduced the cost on our utilities for heating and cooling our buildings um, and our, our water that we've saved by converting to uh, using the treated wastewater for our air conditioning system. So, and we've increased employee morale and increased productivity. So um, there, it's just a number of initiatives on right. many levels of systems um, that direct directly affect people's lives, but profoundly affect um, our community and our ability to have an impact on climate change. I think many people think, well, what can county government do or what can I do? And the fact is local governments can do a great deal. And the reality that I learned because I was honored to be invited to represent local governments at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow last fall, two big takeaways. One, this is really urgent and we have got to act quickly. And two, the national governments can't do it all by themselves. They need the local governments to get engaged 
and adopt the kind of programs that um, we've successfully adopted at, at Travis County. Mm-hmm. So that's on the climate side, a lot to talk about there. I want to make sure we hit a few other uh, key topics and initiatives that the county focuses on. One is criminal justice. Huge one. The county has a um, a huge stake in our local criminal justice system. And, you know, your challenger in this race, that's definitely, um, I would say his background, right, is criminal justice issues. Yeah. Can you talk some about the work been done on criminal justice in the past few years, and particularly the women's jail. That seems to be kind of like yeah. a little bit of a point of disagreement on approach there. That was a big issue that I think caused him to run. Mm-hmm. Um, my opponent has done very good criminal justice organizing. I know because I've worked with him for most of the time I've been on the court. Um, what he, I, I think he doesn't fully understand is the state constitution and state law mandates that every county in Texas must fund and maintain jails. It's not optional for the county. And and he's critical of the the lopsided nature of the budget, but again, that is as a result of state mandates. The counties are extensions of the state. They're very different than cities. Cities have their own authorities. The counties can only do what the state grants them the authority to do. And we've really pushed the envelope on a lot of it. So uh, it seems like his main beef is, is with the jails and he should focus on changing state law because that's absolutely a requirement of state law. On the women's jail, we have a large complex. There's about 25 buildings out at Del Valley. Um, they're used 24 seven, 365 days a year. They, they experience a lot of wear and tear. We're, we're actually in the midst now of trying to figure out how to sort of patch things together since any of the maintenance and longer range plans for the jails facilities have been put on hold. Um, But on the women's jail, we have, I think, a really unacceptable situation in the jail today. The women are all scattered throughout the men's jail. And if they're, they literally said they cannot provide programming for women because they each have to be individually escorted from the separate cells that they're in scattered throughout the jail facility. Um, And there also are no appropriate medical facilities for for the women out of the jail. Um, I was presented that as a problem and an issue that needed to be addressed and it seemed reasonable to me. I also listened to a lot of people who've had um, horrible experiences with the criminal justice system, which I know firsthand. My nephew is, in jail in Colorado for 330 years. Uh, Didn't kill anyone, but did some horrible things. Um, But in two of his cases, his co-defendants walked free. So I've seen the injustice in the system and Lord knows we see it every day on the news. We see it in our own community. Um, So I'm not saying that there isn't room for improvement, Um, but listening to a lot of the justice involved individuals, um, I do think we need to we need to bring an additional lens to how we look at um, our jail operation. Yes, we're required by law to maintain and operate jails, um, but I think we can bring some additional perspective to it. Um, yeah. Do you think? Do you think there's I, like a ba- It's a tricky. It's a tricky thing because it was like you know you're hearing from the sheriff who's who's explaining this and is saying yeah this the conditions here are terrible and and this isn't right and I think most people are like yeah, we don't want to have a jail system where the people who are in there are being treated terribly. But then it's like, 
but we also don't want to spend more money on jail. So like, right. how and do I, you, and I said it clearly, I don't like jails and I don't want to have to spend money on jails. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't, but we're not in a perfect world. And many, I have many friends who are on the same side as, as Bob, and they've been very clear with me. They want to abolish jails. And uh, I support a lot of the criminal justice reforms. I can't get to abolishing jails. I don't think that's responsible. Um, and I think my opponent is not saying it outright, but many of his supporters are advocating for that. And I think you have to find, you have to find some kind of um, middle ground where you can spend the money required to maintain the jails. He's critical of the long range plan, but, and claims that it's uh, spending money for a, a massive increase in, in, in our jails. The long range plan would, would call for the demolition of several buildings and fewer jail beds than we have today. So it's not a massive expansion, but it is expensive, but any county building is. We're putting the finishing touches on a new courthouse for the family and civil courts, and that'll come in at about $350 million. So um, yeah, this is a hard one, but it, we can't just snap our fingers and say, we're done with jails. We're not going to fund them anymore. And, uh, and uh, we don't want to put people in them. That's not a workable solution either. So there's, there's definitely got to be um, some adjustment. And, and I do think it requires us to look differently um, at our um, investments. Um, and, and, and the other reality is we are making really significant investments in diversion we created the sobering center to divert people with drug and alcohol problems into treatment rather than jail. We created the first public defender office in Travis County. We've made significant investments in both of those. In addition, we spend millions of dollars on innovative programs for diversion, prevention, mental health assistance, substance use assistance, um, job training, a whole host of, of programs intended to try and keep people out of jail so that we're making substantial investments on the other side of the equation as well to keep people out of jail. Cause you know, nobody thinks jail is a, is a good solution for uh, people who are struggling with um, various issues in their lives. And yeah. the mental health designation is another one. The state has largely created that problem in every city and county across the, the entire state of Texas. They have shirked their duty on caring for the mentally ill. They used to have institutions where they cared for the mentally ill and they, they did a bad job of it. And so uh, they you know, faced lawsuits that resulted in, in a, a deinstitutionalization. But instead of having the money follow the people so that they would get care in a decentralized uh, system, they simply put them out on the sidewalk and walked away and then blamed the cities and the counties for not taking care of, of these uh, mentally ill, uh, largely homeless population. Part of the reason so many people are in our jail who have mental health designations is because there is nowhere else for them to go. Mm -hmm. The states walked away. So don't blame the county for that. That is a problem largely caused by the state and one that we don't have enough money to solve locally. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about going forward, both with mental health, um, you know, criminal justice, climate change, too, we've been talking about some of what's been done. What do you hope to see happening next? You know, if you're reelected, what are the things you want to focus on or the places where you feel like we can grow on these issues? Um, we have an enormous amount of work to do to 
to better prepare our community for the increasingly destructive um, extremes of weather that, that we will experience. Um, and we're in the midst of a, the development of a resilience hub initiative with the city and the school district that I think is, is absolutely first rate. Um, uh, it, will, it will help provide places where people can go when we suffer extreme cold and power outages like we did last February, or uh, what is even more likely is extreme heat um, in our, mm -hmm. our region. Um, and that's a really important initiative. Um, there's a lot more to do on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we're um, in the process of, of uh, really tailoring in inside the buildings that now have fewer uh, employees because of our aggressive telecommuting program um, to be able to fine tune a further reduction in our use of energy in, in those parts of the building so we can reduce that source of greenhouse gas emissions even more. There's an enormous amount to be done on affordable housing. And at the same time, I'm incredibly proud of the amazing progress we have made. We've used the very limited tools that the county has um, in an extremely creative way and now have 11,000 units of deeply affordable housing in that range of people making 30 to 60% of the average uh, median income uh, or the area median income. Um, and that those units are either on the ground or in the process of being built. 11,000 is significant. Yeah. We're using I, the federal money. Uh, we've earmarked 110 million of the, the federal ARPA dollars um, for 2,000 units of homeless housing. Um, um, so I, I feel like we've, we, we have done some really significant things. And I know my opponent is extremely critical of Tesla. I don't know that we can, we can have a kind of a purity test where we only work with companies whose CEOs we think have nice personalities or, <laughs> or who are not extremely wealthy. Um, but that deal, I think the math on that works really well for the county. And that's what ultimately convinced me to support it. The company that was there before <clears throat> was a sand and gravel operation. We got $640 a year from them in property taxes to the county. Even with the deal, Tesla will generate almost a million dollars in new tax revenue to the county um, forever. And then more after the economic development deal uh, expires, they will be creating at least 10,000 jobs targeted at people who have less than a college degree. And that's, that's more than half our adult population. Those are the people who are stuck in two and three jobs, waitressing, bartending, no health insurance, no benefits, and no real prospects for getting out of those dead-end jobs. 10,000 plus new jobs with decent pay, good benefits, and a ladder out of poverty. Again, I will take that deal. Yeah, so, I, I, I want to ask you really quick about the housing yeah. thing yeah. Um, that you just mentioned, because I think that's an interesting one. I think historically people don't think of the county as being an outlet for being able to be an affordable housing generator because you don't have the ability to do zoning really. And, you know, you're limited. Like you mentioned, the county's not as yeah. able to do as many programs as the do. So can you explain that a little bit more? How was the county able to work with that 11,000 units? Like what is the county actually able to do? We partner with developers and by, excuse me, by partnering with them, we're able to buy down the cost of the rent. Mm. So our, our partnership, uh, if the companies wanna partner with us, they have to commit to build 
uh, a very large percentage of the deeply affordable housing. Before I got on the court, that wasn't the focus. Um, that has been a, a very significant focus of mine and it has resulted in a program that is uh, producing much more deeply affordable housing. But it's the partnership with the county that essentially buys down the cost of the, of the rents. So you're able to use like public dollars to help fund, uh, allow a developer to what, build more or than they normally would, or like what's their incentive to partner with you? Um, they, uh, they get the benefit of, of the partnership with mm -hmm. the county. Um, and, um, and that benefit, um, we tie it to reduced rents. Hmm. Is that a program that could be, I mean, 11,000 is a lot, but is that a program that could be expanded even more or that looked into growing or is that its max capacity? I'm just thinking just in general, because we're always looking yeah. for ways to build more right. affordable exactly. housing of any type. Exactly. Well, one of the biggest problems is the cost of land right. skyrocketing <laughs> in Austin. And so people are having to go farther and farther out. But um, but it does require a developer that understands the affordable housing market. Right, is interested. In not, that. yeah, is interested and has a knowledge of, of how to do it. Not, not everyone has that expertise and it requires some unique, um, unique skills, but it is limited. And we've, this is one, an example of one of those programs where I think we're one of the leaders in terms of counties um, using this creative partnership um, to, produce large numbers of deeply affordable housing. I think we have we have a stronger requirement for deeply affordable housing than almost any other county that I know of in Texas. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because I really don't think of counties as being a player in this, not in the way the city Probably is. Not, not <laughs> that the city is doing as much as we all obviously want, but it is expensive and hard to buy land and, yeah. and all of that. <laughs> Which is why this is significant. Uh -huh. um, and these are components of, you know, and <clears throat> I know my opponent talks about a, a, a Travis County Green New Deal. We're, we've been implementing it. The jobs component, the affordable housing, the criminal justice reform, the environmental initiatives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We are rigorously and vigorously implementing it. And I'm incredibly proud of it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. Maybe before we close, can you yeah. just say really quick, um, a website or yeah. social media or any way that people can follow along with you or learn more. Yeah, um, absolutely. Go to my website at bridgetshay.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate you taking the time as well. And that was Bridget Shea. Next up, let's talk about the Precinct 4 election. Susanna Ledesma-Woody, who's a member of the Del Valley ISD Board of Trustees and a founding member of the Del Valley Community Coalition is challenging incumbent Margaret Gomez. Margaret has been a county commissioner for a while, since 1995, and was the first Mexican-American woman to ever serve as a Travis County Commissioner. Before that, she served as Travis County Constable from 1980 to 1993, and she's had a well-respected career and has won a lot of awards over her time in office. But for Susanna, the work Margaret has done just hasn't gone far enough, especially for the residents of Del Valley, which is an area in the southeastern part of the county that has long suffered from a lack of healthy food access, there's no grocery store in the area, and other health care inequities that were really only amplified by the pandemic. And back in March, Central Health, which is the local health care district that's tasked with providing health care to low-income residents and whose budget is set by the Travis County Commissioner's Court, ended up closing several of its community care health centers in the Del Valley area, 
Now, community care said it didn't have enough personal protective equipment, or PPE, to keep them open at the time, and that many of the clinics were too small to safely operate during the pandemic. And eventually, those clinics reopened again, and a large vaccine center was set up at the Circuit of the Americas. But, you know, a real scar was left behind, and residents like Susanna felt like they were abandoned when they needed it most. All right, so that's just a bit of background for you there. Let's uh, get to the interviews. First up, Susanna Ledesma-Woody. Okay, I'm here with Susanna, and we are talking about... Um, your candidacy for county commissioner. Uh, let's start with just the basics. Who are you? A little bit about your background and why you're running. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm Susanna Ledesma Woody, and I'm running to be your next county commissioner, Precinct 4. I'm a married mother of three. I have an 18 year old, a 14 year old, and a six year old. I'm a 10 year project management specialist at Advanced Micro Devices, a 10 year Dell Valley ISD trustee one of the founding members and current president of the Del Valley Community Coalition. I've grown up in the Eastern Crescent and I've seen firsthand the disparities and the inequalities in our community. Most of my focus has been on education, healthcare and distributive justice, but I'm also a strong supporter of criminal justice reform and environmental justice. As the president of the Del Valley Community Coalition, I've advocated for increasing community access to healthy, affordable foods, comprehensive and affordable healthcare services, viable public transportation, and distributive justice regarding COVID-19 relief and COVID-19 vaccine distribution that actually benefited the residents of Precinct 4. As a trustee, I'm proud of the work that I and other board members have done to not only create a district that focuses on providing excellent education for students, but also takes pride in diversity and celebrates the talents, the identities, and the dreams of each student. I help push to get employee raises, increase health benefits, and provide childcare services all while decreasing the tax rate over the past 10 years. Many parts of Precinct 4 are recognized as either food deserts or healthcare deserts, and all the issues that face our community should have been handled decades ago, and support for them should be consistent and not just during election season. I'm tired of seeing my community suffer, and that's why I'm running. I have the experience and the drive to do this job, and I will use my experience as a community organizer to fight with greater urgency and greater community involvement for long neglected issues that face the people of Southeast Travis County. I will advocate not only during election time, but will go to work every single day fighting for the people. I will not shrug my shoulders and be content to blame inaction on the failures of others. I will roll up my sleeve and I will work with those agencies and community partners to get things done for the residents of Precinct 4. I founded the Davali Community Coalition because the commissioner's court wasn't doing nearly enough. My community was being and is still being left behind. I'm used to getting results without official government support. And if elected, I will look forward to seeing what can be accomplished by combining my work ethic with the resources of the court. I have a track record of fighting for fairness in every workplace, every boardroom, and every organization that I've been a part of. As Commissioner Precinct 4, I will be unwavering and fighting for the voices that have been marginalized. Great. And, you know, you talked a lot there about Del Valley, which is a huge portion of Precinct 4. And, and is this part of Travis County and the Austin area that does get ignored oftentimes? And there's been a lot of conversation about um, food deserts in that area, healthcare deserts in that area, and 
Um, I know that I've, I've seen your name pop up quite a, a few times at different meetings and, and news articles and things like that, that you've been very active advocate for your community and trying to get Del Valley the resources um, that the residents are asking for. I, I wanna start with your um, role as a, IS, a, a Del Valley ISD trustee. First of all, um, can you tell people really quick what a trustee does and then talk a little bit about why that was an important role for you to fill and kind of what you, you mentioned it briefly there, but why that was so important for you to get involved at that school district level and what you were really standing for there. Yeah, so Del Valley, or not just Del Valley, but all uh, public trustees, you know, our main focus is providing excellent education, but we also work on policy and we want to keep our staff happy. Uh, with Del Valley, I got involved, you know, when my, my kids were in the school district and I wasn't happy with it. And since then, we have turned the district around. We, like I said, we're proud of like what we've done. Uh, we've provided, we're providing excellent education. We have great programs and uh, our students are happy. Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, you talk about also the Del Valley Community Coalition, which is another organization you're involved with. And again, I I see your all's work all over town and, and working hard to really advocate for the things that matter to you. Um, and in particular, one thing I've seen that group work really hard on was COVID-19 and vaccines and access to healthcare services. This is a topic we could talk about for hours, probably, but let's start with kind of what you saw as the problem there and what you all work to make happen in in your neighborhood. Yeah, so this kind of all ties with, you know, the one of my priorities is healthcare and, you know, providing hospitals and clinics because that that actually had a huge impact on why we had to do so much for our community. Uh, so I want to help address the disparities that we see in the healthcare when comparing East to West Travis County, because we, we do see that racial and economic lines that mirror the health outcomes. And, you know, with the high number of COVID cases in East Travis County, there, there wasn't access to vaccines. There wasn't access to PPE because we didn't have facilities. We didn't have grocery stores. We didn't have CVSs. And that's, that's a problem. And that's why we lost so many people, unfortunately. And as the coalition president, that was our main focus. It was, let's get vaccines, let's create mobile clinic, let's create pop-up clinics, let's work together, let's um, get the PPE out there, let's get some vaccine um, clinics going, and let's get our people healthy and let's keep them safe. Yeah. And can you explain for folks, because I think this is another disconnect that a lot of people might be aware of, but the role the county commissioner's court actually plays in our public health infrastructure here, because there's that connection there with central health. And I know there was a lot of conversation about where those vaccines were available and testing was available. So maybe just do a, a quick little explainer for people about that connection. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the county commissioners, they approve the budget for central health. And, you know, it's part of my role is once I become commissioner, I won't be approving that, that budget unless I see some fi substantial financial investment in infrastructure for the community has been neglected. Um, that's the role that the commissioners play. So they can say, I don't see any investment in this community. Why should I approve this budget? Right. And, and central health kind of provides a lot of our, is supposed to provide, I guess, a lot of our public health services, correct? Yeah. For, for people who can't afford it. Yes, exactly. And if you look at the demographics of the precinct four, 
you know, we do have some of the highest number of poverty cases and, and people living below 200% the poverty level. So that's crucial to have those facilities and have a district that is providing services for this community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk a lot about community connection. I think this is another one that um, a lot of people don't aren't aware of county government or what they do, but for a lot of people, especially people in the Del Valley area that might not live within Austin city limits or any city limits, and especially as um, Austin continues to, quite frankly, push more people out because they can't afford to live there and, and more people aren't living within city limits, the county government is the only government, you know, is your local government, is the government that represents you. If you were elected, what would you do to try to bring more people into that conversation or really serve as that that advocate and connection to the local community? I will do the same thing I've been doing, but with more resources. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's getting the community involved. It's, you know, being that trusted community advocate. It's talking to leaders in the community who have um, organizing and um, advocacy experience, and then using the resources of the government to talk to people to understand what's going on and then to provide those services and those resources for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, another key uh, component of what the commissioner score does, we talked about healthcare some, but um, criminal justice is also a big purview of what the commissioners are working on. And we've had this ongoing debate here in Travis County about expansion of our jail um, complex. Where do you stand in what the commissioner should be doing at the criminal justice level, what would you like to see being done differently or priorities placed? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a huge supporter of criminal justice, the system uh, reform. Um, the county jail, you know, disproportionately impacts our Black and Latino communities. And we should focus more on rehabilitation than pushing for incarceration. And I, I do plan on working with our judicial departments and our sheriffs and um, our building and maintenances and providing a building structure that is um, equitable to service the community that's in there without expanding it to provide more beds for more incarceration. And you think there's a way to, to walk that balance of not expanding it, but improving the, uh, the yeah. services offered for those? Because I feel like the debate has really not been um, framed that way, Yeah, um, that you could have one without the other. No, absolutely. As a trustee, you know, we, we use bond funds, we use uh, general funds for regular maintenance and updates and, and uh, renovations. Renovations can happen without expansion. Like we, example, we did renovations on security updates. We didn't expand the facility. All we did was we added, you know, secure locks and uh, better systems and cameras. That's, those are renovations. Those are things that can be done without expanding it to provide more beds. Yeah, and I, I wanna talk some also about um, housing, another big issue in Travis County. The Travis County Commissioner's Court this year got a little bit more involved in homelessness initiatives than it has in the past. They got money from the American Rescue Plan and decided to, um, for the first time that I can remember, you know, devote a lot of that money to homelessness services 
what, how would you rate the commissioner scored on dealing with this issue so far? And what would you like to see, I guess, done differently if you were elected as far as dealing with low income housing and homelessness services in particular? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I would explain to the commissioner's court that the city of Austin is in Travis County because they seem to think that there's a difference and there's not. The issues that Austin faces are the issues that Travis County faces, and they should be working together, collaborating with the city of Austin to help address these issues. So that's the first thing. Collaboration with the city would be number one, but also working with the housing authority to ensure that we have substantial investments in low income housing constructions throughout Travis County. And then working with our staff to increase programs and with our partners to help those experiencing homelessness to provide and solve this using federal funds or grants or other financial means. Because what we want to do is we want to protect our community and invest in policies that reduce displacement and homelessness throughout Travis County. Right, you're seeing this as a regional, a regional issue. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a regional issue, right? Because with taxes increasing, the things that are happening in Austin are impacting all of Travis County with the, the way that everyone is transitioning in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in this race in particular, you're running against an incumbent candidate, someone who has served on the commissioner's court for a long time. Why do you feel like it's it's time for someone new? Why did you decide to to run in this way? It can be hard to run against an incumbent. What kind of brought you to the space where you're like, you know, I, I'm ready to run and, and I feel like I'm I'm a good choice for for my precinct or for my district. Yeah. You know, this isn't the first time that I ran against um, the incumbent. Um, the first time I was very inexperienced and I was just trying to um, I really wanted to help our community, right? And so um, I didn't have the experience, and I'll admit I didn't have the experience needed um, to navigate the election process and to navigate all of the quorums that come with running a, uh, an election or running a campaign. But I mean, the bottom line is that Precinct 4 has been neglected and for so long. There's so many disparities that it, it's so ridiculous. And the pandemic just highlighted all of those disparities. All of those issues should have been addressed throughout the decades that the incumbent has been. But because, and, and this is the big difference, it's being an active leader and not only understanding what's going on, but having those lived experiences to help push things along and to help advocate and be a vocal advocate for addressing these issues. And that's just not something that the incumbent has been able to do. It sounds to me, you know, like, addressing these disparities and equities throughout the county is a real frame or theme of your of your candidacy and and why you're you're hoping to to serve yeah absolutely it's number one Mm -hmm. i mean we've we've heard her on the dais say that it wasn't our time to get investments into our community that she was being a good neighbor and letting the other commissioner this is on the dais so it's recorded being a good neighbor and letting them get the things they needed every year for the last 20 years, which has caused the disparities. Because while everyone else is thriving, the quality of life in East Travis County is not because we don't have those resources. We don't have those services. Mm -hmm. And if people want to learn more about your campaign, how can they, what's a good website for them to visit and learn more about all these issues? 
yeah, to learn more about me and my campaign, you can uh, visit SusannaFordCommissioner.com. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was Susanna. Next up, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Margaret Gomez. Okay, I am here with Margaret, and we are talking all about uh, the Travis County Commissioner's race. Um, This is uh, a position that you know a lot about. You've served, um, you've been the commissioner for Precinct 4 for how long now? For about 25 years. Okay. And so let's, let's start with a little bit more about you and your background. How did you become commissioner? Kind of what brought you to this place? Well, I started uh, getting involved in my community as a young adult, uh, volunteering for people's campaigns. And it was uh, school boards, city council, county races, state and national races. And so uh, as a volunteer, I I walked the precincts in, in precinct four. Uh, for these candidates and for issues as well, like for the SOS and to stop the STMP uh, way back when. And, um, and so uh, those, those are the kinds of issues and very active, walking the precincts, getting the information to voters about they needed to participate in, in the, the, these elections. And, and so we had some wins and we had some losses, but you know we learned from them and we came back and won again. And so um, uh, that's what, how I've spent um, most of my time uh, uh, getting uh, acquainted with people. Then I started working for the county in 1973 for a county commissioner. And so I learned uh, what county government was all about. I learned about um, how county government is, is different from city government, for, for example. And, and we're really the closest to the people uh, we don't have county managers or city managers, you know, like the city does. So we, we answer uh, calls that people have directly. They call us directly. And so uh, we're able to, to get them on the right path, get to talking to the right person, or we can give them a, a, an answer if we have it. And, and so it's, um, it's been, um, um, so I've been with the county since 1973. And, uh, and then I, as, a, as an assistant to the commissioner, then I ran for constable in 1980 and served 13 years. And in 1994 is when I ran for county commissioner. So I have a, a real, I've seen county government from the inside for a long time. And, and I really like it. I, I, I like county government. Um, we are an extension of state government. So we we, um, a lot of laws are passed by the legislature for counties, um, probably much more so than cities. Uh, but, but, you know, um, that, that's just the way, the way it is set out. And, and, and I, I've learned how to work with it. Mm-hmm. And so we have to contact the legislature a lot of times for, you know, for changes to laws that we think will make a government work a little better. And, um, and so, uh, it's it's all been a great experience for me. Yeah, and so you know, I want to talk some about some of your experience serving as a commissioner. When you're looking back at what you've been able to achieve so far, what do you what are some standout moments for you or big accomplishments um, that you're most proud of, either recently or kind of further back in your commissioner career? Yeah, I'd have to probably just sit down and really think about some of those uh, instances, but we've had some real 
uh, some real good uh, advancement, um, like in subdivision rules. I think we've really improved that process. Uh, we've improved the process for um, a one-time, a one-stop shop, uh, so that people can have a better experience in trying to get their permits uh, going, uh, both with the city and the county. And so that one-stop shop has made it more efficient, uh, and uh, and people don't have to run around all over town trying to get you know to the different offices. So I mean, we've had, we've had those accomplishments. We've kind of worked on. Um, on uh, laws that kind of help us uh, do a little better job for indigents, uh, which is one of the mandates that county governments have. And so whether you need help with, with rent or food and, and you're uh, indigent, we, we take care of that, as well as if you need an attorney and you can't afford one, we, we take care of that as well. And so that's, that's one of the, the biggest uh, areas where I think we have done really well. Uh, and, um, and, and we have the tax base to also deal with, with those, those needs. Some of the smaller counties, you know, they, they, have, they don't have the tax base, so they're not able to, to take care of some of these needs as well as we do, but I'm very proud that we, we have so far. Mm -hmm. uh, the other area is the criminal justice system, which is huge because uh, it covers everything from constables, JPs, county court at law, judges, district judges, the courts, their, their equipment, their employees, and then, of course, the, the sheriff's office. Uh, the county uh, clerk, the district clerk keep up with all of the records of those departments. So it's, it's a huge, so criminal justice system isn't just one thing, it's, it's the whole group of people who deal with, with those issues. And so that's the other major thing that we're in charge of. And we're always kind of going to the legislature as well to say, you know, we need to an, an improvement in this law so that we can better serve people and not, you know, um, and not get so uh, caught up in, in um, um, being authoritarian, for instance, and, and being more understanding and trying to deal with people's issues. Yeah. And, and so, uh, we've had, you know, I've, I've been very happy about that. Um, then in 1998, I, I went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona to visit their sobering center. And, and so they were, they were doing a very good job of it and they liked it. The police department was cooperative with them. They all worked together. And so I advocated for that when I came back to Travis County. It took a few years to convince a lot of people that that's what we needed to do. But we finally did it. And so far, uh, a thousand people have been diverted from the jail and, and for, for uh, public intoxication, for instance. And, then, um, and so we're looking to, to improve that, that service even more so, uh, especially minor infractions that can be taken care of uh, and with, um, you know, in, a, in a center versus a jail. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've made some, some really progress, uh, a lot of progress in that area as well. There's a lot more to do, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. You, you, you mentioned, you know, criminal justice issues, and I wanted to bring up a more recent mm -hmm. one, which was the women's jail vote yeah. as well. And yeah. so that was one that the commissioners decided to um, put a hold on yeah. funding for a new women's jail. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to that decision and reflect on that, explain a little bit of that background? There? Sure. 
Well, I think we had started out with, you know, the master plan that, you know, how you're going to deal with this, these issues in the future. But, you know, as we all find out, master plans get dated and you kind of have to bring new information into the process. And so I think that's what kind of ha happened with, with this one. We had a new court who was willing to, to take a different direction and County Judge Andy Brown and, and Ann Howard, Commissioner Precinct 3. Uh, and then, you know, we, the court talked about that. And, and, um, and I think the, the original um, plan was to have a clinic for women uh, so that when they were in jail, they, they could get their health issues addressed as well. And there would be enough space so that there would be privacy for them. But I think that what happened now is, is well, let's halt. Let's make sure that we kind of look at this master plan again. And let's see, you know, if some of the, the, the women um, don't have to be in the jail to begin with. You know, of course, my concern after that is if they're not going to be in jail and not receive health uh, health care, then when they get out, will they get health care? Where are they going to get the health care after that? Because obviously they still need that health care. Uh, and so their issues need to be uh, still need to be addressed. So that's that's the only thing about you know, if, while we halt it, where are they going to get their care? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, is this an issue that kind of your own thinking evolved on as, as, as time has gone on and thinking about developing these plans or, or how to balance that of wanting to provide services to those who are incarcerated, but also not wanting to fuel the fire, so to speak, and um, expand our jail population? Right. Yeah. And I think we kind of, um, um, we, we get input from people who have, mm -hmm. you know, certain uh, ideas and it's good to, to listen to folks when, you know, they've gone to um, certain conferences or they've gone to, you know, had certain experiences in the community with people and they find out that, oh, this isn't working, this other might work. And so it, it's, a, it's a conversation in progress. Uh, and so nothing is, is really ever set permanently. And, and so we, we um, I think that's one of the things that, that I have found is, is really helpful to me is to listen to what people have to say, listen to their experiences and listen to, um, you know, examples of, you know, maybe other communities that have been successful uh, with some of these um, um, uh, uh, situations, you know, that you know, could probably help us as well. Mm -hmm. Because we're we're really dealing with humans, you know, all in everywhere that we that we are, and so it's trying to serve people a lot better than than uh, and then just ignoring them. Right. You know, I want to talk about another thing you mentioned, which is providing services for lower income folks or indigent mm -hmm. folks and um, mm -hmm. homelessness was obviously another big issue yeah. throughout the region. And Travis County Commissioner's Court voted to make some really sizable investments in yeah. homelessness from the American Rescue Plan this year. Can you talk about, I guess, what brought you to that and what you hope to see the county doing um, for homelessness services you know, going forward? Well, I think the thing that frustrated me so much was that there's a lot of conversation going on and not very little action on it. And, you know, and, and you, you get impatient after a while. I mean, I can listen to all of the discussion and I can listen to reasons for this and reasons for that. But, you know, the, the central point that still was there is that there were people living in tents 
And they didn't belong in those tents any more than they belonged in cages. And to me, it made no sense for us to keep talking about it. Is that, look, let's take a stance. Let's do something. So when that federal money came down, you know, everybody's talking about what to do with the federal money and, you know, and this and that. There's all kinds of good stuff that we could spend our money on. However, this was once in a lifetime chance, you know, opportunity for us to take a stance on, on getting people in homes. And, you know, the community first, uh, Alan Graham and, and his group, I mean, they've just done an excellent job at housing uh, homeless folks and, and getting them to, to be in a community and be part of a community. And, and they, um, they raise food for themselves. And I think they get into a little bit of, um, you know, uh, either selling or bartering or whatever, you know, they, which is great. You know, that's what you do in a community. And, and so to me, it was like, you know, yeah, I, mean, I think we need to move with, with Alan and then do the, um, the we're calling it the uh, Burleson uh, Village, I think at this point uh, over in Precinct 4. And, um, and then- This is like another, the big expansion of, of yes. that project from you first. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they were asking for 50 million, you know, and I thought, yeah. You know, let's let's do. And then then there's the campus uh, Esperanza, mm -hmm. which had a few other people as well. And there's a group of, of uh, folks who are ready to build tiny homes over in that area. And then there's uh, community foundations also, which has uh, an apartment building where they could remodel some some uh, uh, units and also have people live there. So we were thinking that 2000 people could get housed. 2,000 people, that's a big dent in, in the population of homeless. And, and, you know, to get them out of the elements, my gosh, I just can't imagine living in, in, out in the elements when it's really, really cold or it's really hot, you know, and it just can't be good for their health. It just can't be. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, talk about the poorest of the poor. I mean, we need to really do something and you know, and that's our mandate as a county government. So let's do it. Let's do our job. Mm -hmm. And so that was why uh, that's what got me to the point where I said, okay, let's do a resolution. Let's get these groups done. Let's go ahead and set aside $110 million to deal with the, uh, at least 2000 homeless folks and get them out of the elements. And so right now we're, we're moving forward, except that, you know, there's always red tape you know, involved with the federal government and with governments. And, you know, to a point, it's necessary so we can make sure that the money is really spent on what it's intended for and that it doesn't get wasted and then people aren't left out in the cold again. Mm -hmm. And and so, but I understand that. But it's still, I think we need to kind of, let's make progress. Please, let's make progress and let's get these homes built. Right. You know, and speaking of that, I kind of, I want to talk about the future a bit and what comes next. You know, this is, a job you've, you've had for a while. I think you're the longest serving commissioner. What makes you, what are you excited about looking forward? Why, why do you feel like, um, you have more to, to bring, you know, if you're reelected, what, what would you hope to be the next project that you're working on or that you're able to, to bring instead of just being like, I'm retired, I'm going to relax. <laughs> what do you want to, what, 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 what's like fueling your fire there of, of what, what you want to keep working on at the County, what you'd like to see in the next four years. 
Well, I think the, the housing is something that is badly needed in this in Travis and Austin. I mean, we seem to have forgotten to provide housing for low income, for middle middle income. And and so, you know, who can afford five hundred and fifty five thousand dollar homes? And uh, and especially when you've lived in this area a long time, you pay taxes, you've helped the city and the county get to where we are today with with the taxes and and your support. And so I mean, we need to support people as well and not have them leave uh, Austin or Travis County. And as I mentioned before, the, the surrounding counties are small. Sometimes they go into those counties, but they don't have the tax base that we have in order to take care of their needs. And so to me, it's like, let's not sentence people to that, uh, to even get you know further behind in, in meeting their needs. And so we need to, my, we have got to build housing. So far, I think our, we have built about uh, 11,000 uh, homes or a little more than that in Travis County uh, for, to meet those needs. Affordable. But we need a lot mm -hmm. more, just so much more. And, but we have the applications for, um, for this housing coming in all the time. And, and so we kind of look at them and we ask that they, uh, in return for our, our support of them, that they provide us some deep affordable housing units um, because we need to make sure that people have homes. And, um, and so to me, that, that's, that's my, my, my passion. I really need, I'm very committed to that. We need to, we can, and I think we need to absolutely make sure that we meet that need. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then the other thing is like flooding in Southeast Travis mm -hmm. County, that has always been a major issue, mainly because of topography. We're downhill, uh, Southeast Travis County is downhill from, from you know, the, and as we know, water runs downhill. And so uh, the dams, thank goodness, were built. And so that stopped some of the flood, major flooding. Uh, but the creeks now, you know, kind of carry a lot of that water. And there's one in Southeast Travis County called Dry Creek. Well, mm -hmm. that is a huge misnomer <laughs> when it floods. And, and so uh, I used to really love creeks and I thought I wanted to live near creeks but after I saw the flooding <laughs> that occur that can occur yeah. I mean it's it's kind of um you have to really really be careful how how that is and how and then you have to be careful where you build your home mm -hmm. so that you're not caught up in the floodplain or the floodway in many cases and so uh that's the other thing that I need to pursue is trying to get funding for uh, to make sure that we implement a flood study that we um, we had a few years ago, and we're just waiting for the money. Now through bond elections, we have addressed the flooding in a in a way. Elroy Road is one of the <clears throat> excuse me one of the major roads <clears throat> that always flooded, and and so when it when it rained real hard, the the kids at uh, Del Valley, if they were at home, the buses couldn't get to them because it was flooding. And if they were in the schools, they couldn't get them home because it was flooding. So now Elroy is going to be a major evacuation route that we got done. And, uh, and so that was one of the, the 2017 bond election. And so we were able to get enough money to fix not only Elroy, but other roads that, are, uh, that flood in that area. So, um, 
So that's one of the things that I, I have to pursue. But I've known about the flooding since I started working with Travis County mm-hmm. back in 1973 in the 60s. There was a lot of flooding, you know, and uh, and so along the Colorado River, the city of Austin got flooded in 1935. It was a major, major flood. So it's always happened, but we need to kind of learn how to how to deal with water because yeah. it's very strong. Yes, always strong. in Texas. Yeah, you either yeah. have a lot or you don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about healthcare um, mm-hmm. and the pandemic. Obviously, this has been something that's dominated the conversation for the yeah. past few years. And Travis yeah. County, um, as kind of serving as the Board of Central Health, plays a role mm-hmm. in providing, again, healthcare services, especially to those who can't afford it. Right. Um, I think, you know, your opponent in this race, that's like, Her big argument is she feels like the Travis County Commissioner's Court has not done a good enough job providing those services during the pandemic, especially to parts of Del Mm -hmm. Valley and areas of your district. And Mm so I I guess I just want to hear from you a little bit of like what your response to that has been and how, you know, I know you've heard that criticism and -hmm. what you feel like you have done at the county or kind of what your response to that is. Well, I think the Commissioner's Court has has responded as best we can to make sure that we reach uh, the people who need our, our help m- the, the most. And, and again, because we're responsible for indigents, we, uh, we really uh, uh, talked to uh, Central Health. We talked to, um, we had that clinic out at CODA so that people who, uh, who are um, the clients of Central Health and through the Sendero Insurance Company, and these are, you know, the folks who buy into that insurance company with, with Central Health. So those folks live in, in, in Bastrop, Caldwell, Hayes, and Travis County. So that's why the clinic was out there in Southeast Travis County, so we could reach those folks. And, and we did. And it took a lot of communication, talking to them, talking to the county judges, talking to the commissioners, and making sure that they spread the word so that there would be... Um, a successful uh, clinic at CODA. And, and with the help of uh, Constable uh, George Morales, you know, we put together a collaborative team that would uh, also spread the word and also make sure that they contacted people and, and make sure that those people trusted this team, that they were really looking out for, for their, their uh, best interest in health uh, and that they get the education about the vaccine and they get vaccinated. And, and I'm happy to say that the, the numbers were really good in terms, however, you know, we still needed to reach many more people. And so the collaborative team has stayed together. They're working in that Eastern Crescent, uh, Del Valley and Maynard and, and uh, the other uh, areas. They have vaccinated more than 270,000 people. And, and which is, you know, and, and as I said, we still need to reach more uh, because anytime that we still have unvaccinated people, then that kind of contributes to the surges that variants bring uh, along to us. And so it's still a very, right now, it's still a very um, um, dangerous time. We still have to wear masks, wash our hands and be very careful social distancing and not let our guard down because that virus is, is, um, is bent on staying alive and, and infecting us. 
And, and so, and I don't mean to, you know, say that to, to scare anybody, but it, it's, it's what, you know, the scientists and doctors are telling us, don't let your guard down. We're not out of this, out of the woods yet. Uh, so, um, so, you know, I mean, I think that we've, we've, uh, and, and this collaborative, collaborative team goes out every, almost every day, you know, wherever they're called to go, they go football games, you know, um, any gathering that, that, that uh, is, is uh, anywhere in this, in this, especially the Eastern Crescent, because we're concentrating on that area um, the, the, for, for the services, mm-hmm. for the vaccines. So, no, I, I, I know, I, of course, you know, people always think we can do a lot more and we, and we try, we really are trying, we're listening to people where they need to be, uh, and that collaborative team is, is mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they move wherever, wherever they're needed. And, and so, um, you know, I wish we could reach, I wish we could reach a hundred percent vaccination rate, but you know, it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just before we close, we're running out of time a little bit, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you think about your general approach and, and guide to serving as a commissioner, you know, you, you have to make a lot of big decisions all the time. You're, you're mm-hmm. focused on really large budgets and tax rates and like central health, where right. to divert those resources. What do you feel like is kind of your guiding light or principle? Like when you're, you're trying to manage this, what's your, you feel like your main drive or mission in being a public elected official? Uh, a lot of times it's balance um, because, you know, I recognize that there's a, a limit to the amount of revenue that we get in and it's based on taxes. And, you know, I hear people saying my taxes are too high uh, already. So I think that, that as long as we can show that we are being very wise in how we utilize the, these, um, this revenue and that it's benefiting the most people of Travis County because we're all in this together. And, and so uh, I think as long as they, they feel that and, and so some of the, the, the feedback I get is, you know, Margaret, you're doing a good job, you know, and so that makes me feel good uh, that at least uh, I'm trying to be very careful to, uh, to, um, um, to have balance uh, and, and still take care of those, those mandates that we have and, and to do them uh, correctly and to find, uh, to talk to the legislators if we need help in, in improving those services and offering solutions. You know, don't just criticize the, 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 the policy, but the, provide a solution on how to make it better. And so to me, it, that's, what, that's what most of it has been about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just to close, is there a website or a good way for folks to learn more about you? Um, I think we had found one, you know. I think it's votemargaretgomez.com. Okay, great. And we can plug that in if it's. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, great. Well, that's pretty much it. I really want to uh, thank you for taking the time to chat today. And that was Margaret Gomez. And that's pretty much our show for today. Remember that early voting for the primaries begins on February 14th, and that election day is March 1st. 
You can find info on polling locations and wait times, as well as a sample ballot on votetravis.com. And be sure to stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Austin Common Radio Hour and to keep an eye on our Instagram page, because we'll be publishing election guides throughout the month of February, so you'll feel super prepared to cast your vote in the primary. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. The show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the TR Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at TR Girl Band. That's our show. Thanks. Bye.